Hello, and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Dr. Christopher Sather is a board-certified physician in family medicine and obesity medicine with expertise in nutrition and metabolic health. Dr. Stather has been committed to improving the management of diabetes in the hospital setting, with success in reducing glucose levels and insulin requirements for patients, often achieving dramatic results even in short hospital stays. While working as a hospitalist, he served as the principal investigator on an inpatient study of the nutritional management of diabetes in the hospital setting, and continues to closely follow nutritional research. These efforts with nutrition and lifestyle modifications have renewed his enthusiasm for practicing medicine and continue to be rewarding by being able to help individuals to reverse their diabetes, improve their metabolic health, and avoid the myriad complications that necessitate hospitalization. Outside of medicine, he enjoys spending time with his wife and two daughters. Some of his many interests include music, strength training, traveling, outdoors, backpacking, water skiing, juggling, home improvement, and raising backyard chickens. You can find him at www.revitalizemetabolichealth.com. Dr. Stather, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. All right. Thanks a lot, Casey. Glad to be here. It is awesome to have you. I was so glad to meet you a few weeks ago at Low Carb Denver. I am going to say that already you're starting out with a very low amount of clout with us. You said you're from Minnesota and you've never played ice hockey and you've never gone ice fishing. What is up with that? <laughs> That's correct. Um, don't have much excuse for that. But uh, but I enjoy all, all things Minnesota, actually. It's just uh, it's unique that I I actually grew up a, a whole mile away from a, a really popular sporting lake, and I'd never been on it as a kid. Wow. But in all in all fairness, my parents had a lake property up in uh, Wisconsin, so I spent my summers up there. That's amazing. That's where I got my, my water fun. That's amazing. So my wife also has um, a family cabin up in northern Wisconsin. I'm not sure where yours is, but that is a such a beautiful area of the world during the summertime. Absolutely oh, amazing to go water skiing and to spend time on the lakes. It's just incredible there. Yeah, it makes the uh, the bug swatting worth it. Dude, bug swatting. That is serious. I remember people <laughs> telling me, like, you have to take the bugs really seriously in Wisconsin. I was like, meh, not that big of a deal. Like, I don't really love to use chemicals or whatever. Dude, five minutes exposed out there was like you got eaten alive. You have to take that super serious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mosquitoes, the Minnesota state bird. I don't know if you've heard that. That's a fact. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it in the lake they have. No, that's uh, that's fantastic. It's cool that you spent time up there. Um, it is a wonderful place to enjoy the outdoors. And uh, yeah, it sounds like you were active in all kinds of other things besides um, ice hockey and ice fishing. You said you were a scout also growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boy Scouts all the way. Um, and then kind of melded into the uh, Explorers group. There was a healthcare Explorers group, which is actually a division of the Boy Scouts, um, but not limited to boys. Uh, so that was kind of cool, but, uh, but yeah, all things, you know, sports, uh, I was big on baseball, basketball, soccer, et cetera. Um, yeah. Oh, I was, I was busy. <laughs> you were. And then, and then, well, and then, and then when it, you know, when school came around, uh, that was really my focus. I was a, I was a very serious student and, uh, you know, all sorts of AP classes. I went to a, a college prep high school. Wow. Uh, and, uh, yeah, in fact, I get to get a load of this all male, uh, military college prep high school it was intense i'll bet that was pretty serious yeah 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 it was great it was it was perfect for me i um it, it gave me the focus it allowed me to focus and i uh i was really uh, hell-bent on on going big academically and so it was a, it was a good jump start on college and and uh, i i loved it wow wouldn't trade it for anything <laughs> 
Wow. And you're also a golden gopher, right? You went to the University of Minnesota, at least for part of your schooling. That was only med school. So I, I don't really identify as a gopher. Gotcha. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did undergrad in Iowa, Cornell College. Gotcha. Uh, small school. And then, uh, so known for their one course at a time calendar, uh, which itself was really cool too. And then, um, and then back to Minnesota for medical school. Yeah. Gotcha. Did you, did you always know, excuse me, that you wanted to be a doctor? Uh, so probably about my, my best recollection is it was ninth grade. I remember doing the, um, job assessment, uh, exercise and, and it didn't come out doctor. Right. If I recall, it was some stupid, like lawyer, no offense lawyers, but (laughs) (laughs) I think I would have died of boredom. Um, and, uh, but then, then that year I remember it evolved. Uh, I was, I became really fascinated by, uh, life sciences, biology. Um, my mother was a pediatric ICU nurse. So I was always surrounded by these, uh, medical textbooks, nursing textbooks, et cetera. And so just developed a fascination about the human body from that. And, uh, and that's when I, my, my interest in medicine really picked up. Mm. It was that, that, you know, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Gotcha. Pretty young. So when is it in your schooling and, and med school that you have to decide on something to specialize on? So the first two years of medical school are pretty standardized. You're learning the physiology, then pathophysiology, uh, all the, you know, the disease processes and so on. And then in your third and fourth years, aside from these, the standard core rotations, you're allowed to choose some electives. So it's over that those third and fourth years where you, you better have it figured out so that you can prepare for the, the residency of your, your choice. So really it's during the first, first, uh, second, sorry, first and second years of medical school, when you start doing some uh, rotations with uh, community docs and so on, you start getting a sense of what's interesting. But that's the key time is probably second year of med school. You got to figure it out. Yeah. So you don't have a long window to be able to sort that out. What began to interest you as far as like a a specialization? Excuse me. Yeah. Well, starting to follow docs in their clinics, just the community docs, whether it's a family doc, internist, pediatrician, uh, you know, there was a big focus on primary care in medical schools uh, because that's always such a huge need. And just spending the day with them, you know, every single day I did that, I was totally in love. Like, yes, this is, this is for me, everything was the best thing ever. Right. So made it difficult, of course, like, oh, peds, love it. Go see adults. Oh, adult medicine, love it. And then family medicine. Oh, I can do both. You're kidding me. This is great. Um, ultimately, I decided on family medicine uh, because to me, the, that's the picture of a real doctor, um, the, the jack of all trades. You know, for example, I always, I always had this little scenario in my head of, you know, if, if, I'm, a, if, if I'm sitting on an airplane and there's a, an emergent need for a doctor, I don't want to be that ridiculously specialized doctor who has no clue how to help someone in a, in a time of need like that. And so, so I wanted to be uh, the doctor who had that breadth of skill, uh, that skill set that could serve anyone at any time. And, and, you know, little did I know when, once you do family medicine, for example, um, the world's your oyster, you can pretty much go any direction you want. Wow. 
uh, you know, there's, there's limitations, obviously you may need more training to do some things, but, but you can really do some pretty exotic, uh, things. You can work on a cruise ship. You can go work in rural Alaska. You can go work around the world in remote areas. There's a need for that, those skills everywhere. Yeah. So interesting. So with all of those skills, when I think of a family physician, I think of like a clinic setting, you know, it, it could be down the street in, you know, maybe a strip mall or something. It's different than thinking about family medicine being practiced at a hospital, but you ended up practicing at a hospital. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I, outside of residency or after my residency, my three years residency, uh, I decided to join a group practice, a family medicine uh, clinic. Uh, this was in suburban Minnesota and uh, loved it. It was great. You know, I got to practice full spectrum family medicine from cradle to grave uh, to deliveries, peds, OB, uh, adults, inpatient, outpatient, did the works. It was great. That was basically my dream job. And then things were shifting at that time. So this was, uh, this was the mid 2000s. And uh, there was a there was a trend towards outpatient physicians, or sorry, community physicians, primary physicians, turning over their inpatient practices to the hospitalist uh, teams and focusing instead on the the outpatient care only. And, and really, it was driven by financial pressures of the fact that you can be more productive if you just focus on only the clinic rather than starting your day in the hospital rounded, then driving to the clinic. And then fielding phone calls all day and potentially having to go back to the hospital at the end of the day. Whereas if you just focus on the outpatient only, all right, you just hammer out a bunch of patients in the clinic without those interruptions. Uh, that's that's a, a benefit financially for the clinic. But my partners put up with me for, for quite a while. Uh, I said, I don't want to leave the hospital. And, uh, and so they stuck it out. Uh, they don't want me to leave. But then, you know, the writing was on the wall. Uh, it was becoming more and more clear. And so ultimately I decided, all right, I'm going to go become a hospitalist instead. And so, yeah, it's a little bit unusual. Uh, there, there's, you know, of the hospitalists, I mean, probably 10%, 15% are family medicine docs. Uh, but we have the breadth of skills to do it. And, uh, you know, you get in and do it full time. Uh, you learn the skills, you pick up the skills just as if you'd always done it. Uh it's really no different than than the internal medicine trained docs mm. that make up the bulk of the hospitalists. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So I think if, if I'm not mistaken, it's only Dr. Eli Jerouz, who we've hosted on our show, who has been a hospitalist. And I remember asking him what that is. Can you define what a hospitalist is and what what that job entails essentially? Yeah, basically a hospitalist is a physician who specializes in hospital-based problems. So any type of medical issue that might land a person in the hospital and that's that's our domain and so basically once a once a patient gets admitted through the emergency department you know the er says all right this person's sick enough to need to be hospitalized then the hospitalist team takes over and uh until they until they leave the hospital that involves you know being the attending basically so so overseeing all the care that a patient receives in the hospital, coordinating the specialists uh, and, and uh, doing the daily management um, of, of whatever problems arise. And so it requires a, a, a very broad set of skills that that's typical of the, the primary care trained uh, physicians. 
And, and then it requires knowing your limits. When do I need to bring in a specialist for uh, assistance on a particular problem? Wow. Well, you mentioned it a few times, a, a broad level of care and skill, and it certainly sounds that way. Uh, what things, did, did, how do I phrase this? Did, did you treat different things as your career was moving on, or was it pretty much the same kind of stuff that you would normally see, anything that comes into a hospital? Yeah, it was always, it was always a general uh, broad situation. There was, I never really had a uh, focus until my recent uh, departure from the hospital. So, so no matter what came in, I had to, I had to deal with it. Uh, that's just the nature of, of the job because we, we didn't, we didn't specialize on particular problems. Now, everybody over time develops particular interests. And so, so for example, at some point I became particularly interested in the metabolic uh, disorders uh, diabetes, et cetera. And so, so when those patients came in, you know, I was particularly skilled and, uh, adept at managing those patients, uh, because that was my big interest. Uh, but it's still dealing with anything and everything as a hospitalist. Yeah. So how did that interest in metabolic health start to materialize? Can you compare like the kind of care that you were doing before being interested in that to, you know, what kind of evolved for you to, to, I guess, practice in a different way? Yeah. So this, this was back in, uh, it was 2014. I was part of this emerging leaders group with my, my employer, um, basically developing hospitalists into becoming leaders for their teams. And one of the assignments was find a performance improvement project. Like, oh man, that's that's a that's a huge undertaking. To find something that I want to spend all my time on for the next several months had to be good, right? And nothing at the time really stood out. So I said, all right, I'm gonna go go to work this week. I'm gonna pay attention to something that pisses me off. What what pisses me off about the way the hospital works? And that could be a good project. So here I am one morning reviewing this patient's chart, diabetic. He's, he's on insulin. I, I don't remember why he was there. It doesn't even matter. He was acutely ill, uh, looking over his glucoses and consistently 200s, 300s. I'm like, what the heck? We're, we're throwing insulin at him, all the sliding scale insulin, which is the default approach in the hospital. And, uh, and so I walk in the room, and this was shortly after, or sometime in the mid-morning, and he had just finished off his breakfast. Giant plate from a, a Belgian waffle with syrup, with side of fruit, orange juice. And I just lost it. Like, dude, what, what is going on here? What did you really just eat that whole waffle? He's like, well, yeah, they gave it to me. I'm like, uh, your your diet are you on? Well, they said I'm on a diabetic diet. So I storm out of that room and and uh and get into the chart. Like, sure enough. He's got the diabetic diet order. So I called on to the cafeteria like, hey, what's going on here? Why did my patient just have an entire tray full of carbs on his diabetic diet? I'm like, oh, yeah, well, he's allowed 60 grams of carbs per meal. And, and that falls within that range. So like, no, 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 this is so wrong. And so uh, so that was the that was a big turning point for me. So that launched me into doing a ton of research and uh, and, and looking into why why is the diabetic diet as it is why why is that the standard of care 
especially in the hospital. And so took me into reviewing all sorts of uh, treatment guidelines as well as the dietary guidelines. And this is when I discovered, you know, people like Eric Westman and, uh, you know, I met him at the low carb Denver conference and basically told him he was the reason I was there, you know, coming across his research paper, um, it, that, uh, it just shapes my, my path. And, uh, and so, so diving into this this research, you know, kind of the, the pioneers in the low carb field at the time, and uh, and that and that became my my performance improvement projects and ultimately the direction of my career. Uh, so so I put together all this research. I formulated this argument for why we need to fix the approach to managing diabetes in the hospital, specifically with the just that simple nutritional intervention. And I took it to uh, a couple of committees uh, that were relevant to that uh, in the hospital and, and proposed this performance improvement project. And, and that's where, that's where fireworks went off, <laughs> um, got all sorts of flack from, from the, the nutrition department, especially um, the dietitians railed against me um, there was very little support. Uh, I will say that that you know there's an intensivist slash pulmonologist who was on that committee, and and that's where I got the most support. Um, you know he was he was a he was a very uh, um, uh, serious uh, evidence based guy, and you know he he's like he's looking at it and says, well yeah I see their logic in this let's let's see what you can do with it. Uh, so he offered low level support, uh, but I really not, I really never got the, the support I needed to make this a big project. Um, and ultimately it just faded away. Uh, and so I did my best to, to scour up some data. I kept track of patients I saw and I, I, I did a little analysis of the data from, from the patients that I had best I could do because it was all on my own and, uh, and the data looked really good. You know, I tracked, uh, I tracked my patients on the diet, and I also tracked a little cohort of standard patients. Um, obviously, biased <laughs> to to me being the only one uh, um, working with those patients. But I did, I you know, along the way, I got some of my colleagues to appreciate the the value of it, and and still to this day, some of them are 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 using the the strategies that I did. You know, one of the big Outcomes from that, one of the big victories, small victory, but but if you understood the the hospital system, uh, I think it's actually quite a big victory. Is it resulted in putting a a, net, a new default, but not a default, a new option, a button on their Epic order. So in the Epic electronic record, when you select a diabetic diet, the default was sixty grams per meal, and then there was an option for seventy five and an option for ninety grams per meal. Yeah, exactly. Outrageous. And so I proposed not crazy aggressive. I proposed a 45 gram restriction. That way they, they had some flexibility. It allowed them to order several different things uh, still, um, but it would make a, a dent in their, their glycemic control. And so ultimately I got them to put the a 45 gram button on the, on the order set. And it remains there to this day. So that was a that was one of the 
small, big victories, wow. if you will. Wow. That's, yeah. that's amazing. For, so what is 45 grams in a meal? That to me is like one cup of cooked rice. Is that right? Yeah, perhaps a little more than that. So, so to give it, you know, a, a loaf, sorry, a slice of bread is approximately 12 to 15 grams. Um, I'm not sure about a cup of rice exactly. That could be pretty close. Okay. So you were successfully able to lower recommendations per meal. If somebody wanted to from four slices of bread down to three slices of bread <laughs> per meal. That's one way of looking at it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that aggressive. Yeah, exactly. I was going to, it's not like they're I'm depriving anyone. Right. I was going to ask like, what, what other like egregious things did you propose? That's not even that big of a deal. Oh, that was it. Uh, what I did was I, I proposed the 45 gram restriction and mind you, I was only proposing a pilot study. This is not the default. Um, the, the, the default to this day remains 60 grams. Uh, all, all I proposed was let's do a pilot project. Let's see if this makes a difference because if it does, then maybe we take this bigger and wouldn't, wouldn't we want to improve patient care? Because we know that high glucoses are associated with worse outcomes, worse recovery, poor wound healing, increased infections, all of those things, right? Uh, so, so, so I was just proposing this as, hey, if, if this shows good data, the hospital should, should love this and run with it. Um, and, and so it was just a short-term, very limited study. It was only on one unit out of the 10 units in this, this facility. Uh, so, so I proposed the 45-gram restriction. And the only other thing I did was I, I created a separate menu for these patients, the eligible patients, so patients with type 2 diabetes. Basically reasoning that, like, all right, if we're going to tell them you need to restrict your carbohydrates, don't show them the shiny thing and then tell them they can't have it. So don't show them the standard menu that's full of crap and then tell them they can't have it. So let's just give them a smarter menu and, and allow them to choose from, from the, the better choices, the lower carb choices. Yeah. I, I also reasoned, you know, if the hospital is serving something, the patient has the impression that that's healthy. That that's a good choice. Like, hey, I'm diabetic and the and the hospital gave me Fruit Loops this morning. Those must be okay to eat when I'm at home because the hospital gave it to me. They're the authority. In fact, I've had several patients comment to me about that too and saying, well, they gave it to me. Should be okay to eat, right? And it puts me in a bad spot because then I have to, then it's me versus the hospital saying, oh, well, you know, here's why that showed up on your tray this morning. I'm sorry to give you this mixed message, but here's why you don't want to eat all those carbohydrates, et cetera. Uh, in fact, I had, I had talked to this one guy a couple of years ago. Um, I, I told him about my thoughts on, on the diet and controlling the sugar and so on. And the next morning I, I come in and, and he tells me what's on the tray and he makes the comment. You know, Doc, they might as well have just brought in a pack of cigarettes for me. That's how bad that meal was. <laughs> yeah, man, you have a point. Wow. And so, so that's the power of, the, of those little things. The hospital says it's okay by the fact that they put it on my tray. And so, so my approach was, 
create this list. In fact, I just I made it a tear-off list so that they could even take it home. And it showed them good examples of, of food that were, or of meals that were more appropriate for their diabetes. Uh, so I, I made it an education piece too. Wow. So what did those meals look like? Like what were you recommending in, instead of the Fruit Loops? <laughs> yeah, so basically it was just cutting out the simple carbs. It was, it was you know, here's a meal without the toast. Here's a meal with, 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 with smaller servings of, of potatoes perhaps or, or eliminated the, the breakfast burrito minus the burrito. Um, it was, you know, instead of the, the chicken sandwich or the burger or the sand or the deli meat sandwich, it was have the fillings. In fact, I don't care. Order two, order two chicken breasts, two burger patties, no bun. So taking away some of the sides, just eliminating, uh, the high carb, simple sugars. And so it was really just focused on, on the, the more or the higher quality ingredients. Wow. And, and formulating meals that were still appetizing without the, the high carb load. So it didn't look that different. It was just simply uh, get rid of some of the sides and, and be smarter about serving sizes and so on. Because I still had to work within the, the limits of the hospital as far as what they were able to pump out of the kitchen. Um, and so, so I had to be strategic about it. And I, you know, it was, it was a delicate process of here's my proposal. What can they do? They can look at it and say, yes or no, we can't handle that or whatever. Uh, and so, so it's, it's pretty tedious getting that, all of that squared away. Wow. Now, unfortunately, the, I'll tell you that I still have a foot in the hospital. I, um, still pick up some shifts periodically and, uh, the, the quality of the food service has declined significantly. It's terrible. Worse now. Uh, oh yeah. Far <laughs> worse. Yeah. And you know, it's, I mean, you, we can blame a lot of things on, on the last three years, uh, financial stresses and so on. Um, and, and food is one of those things. It's, it's a, it's a big cost and a lot of food, unfortunately goes wasted in the hospital setting. I mean, you bring a meal to someone and oh, I'm just not hungry and it gets thrown away. It's like, okay, I, I understand you're not going to fork out a ton of money on the food, but maybe we could be smarter about it. Uh, offer higher quality ingredients in the hospital. I, it's it was a big battle of mine for for ten years. Uh, it was frustrating. Wow, that would be immensely frustrating. How was how was your advice on changing some of these meals being received like practically from the patients? Did they revolt against you when you said you know you shouldn't have Fruit Loops and maybe you could have two chicken breasts? Like, was it a terrible thing for them to adjust to? Not at all. All it took was a little bit of education. And they were, they were rallying. I said, yes. Oh my gosh, doc, you're the first person to ever talk to me about this stuff. You're the first doctor to ever even mention nutrition. Heard that all the time. And, and once you explain the basic science behind it, just the basic physiology of carbohydrates break down to glucose, and that raises the glucose in your blood. Uh, they get it. It didn't take much. And so, so it was, a, it was just a matter of proper education. Uh, now, of course, in the hospital, I have a captive audience. They're, they're stuck. They're in a desperate position. They're, they're willing to try almost anything. And I realized that, uh, 
but but they were they were very um, in tune to what can I do without medication to improve my diabetes. Everybody wants that. I, I at least that was the impression I had. At least the people I was working with. Um, and granted, there's always some patients who just don't care. They're very careless, self uh, self neglectful. But if when patients learned that hey, I can make a huge difference in my health by making some simple changes in my nutrition. They loved it. And, and they were very excited to, to implement these changes. I mean, I'd have, I'd have you know families coming in like, hey, I want to hear what this doctor's saying. And so the next day I'd have to do an abbreviated spiel uh, and you know, repeat some of the, the same things I was teaching them because uh, they were all on board. Like, hey, mom, dad, we're going get to you, get you fixed up here. I'll take over the, the cooking if that's what it takes. So people were very excited about this, this idea of diet matters. Wow. Uh, and, and, and the healthcare system never broached that topic with them. Wow. That's the sad thing. That's so interesting. It's like when you and I talked the first time, you were um, uh, featured in our, our uh, podcast episode where we talked to lots of different attendees from Low Carb Denver, and I really appreciated that conversation with you. We'd had a short chat, but we made the point that like most people would see obese people or diabetic people and just think like, this is obviously their fault. They're, they're screwing themselves up. They don't really care to get better. Clearly again, I made the point then I'm going to make the point now that is not the case that I'm seeing out there. People do care a lot and they do want the right information and they get really frustrated when they feel like they're following the right information and it doesn't work for them. So it's really encouraging to hear that these people really wanted the help were open to it, even though it was like a more unconventional message. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was. It was very reassuring to see people respond to that favorably, and it it really convinced me that hey, this is a service that people need. And 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 as a hospitalist, though, I was stuck in this, you know, one patient at a time uh, position, and you know, I could make a big difference for that one person, uh, but it felt like. The, the system always made it more difficult. There's always changes in the in the hospital, uh, increasing demands, less time to do our work, and uh, yeah, it just it just it just wore on me. Um, so so now now I make this sound depressing. <laughs> <laughs> It would be very depressing. Yeah. It reminds me of my personal training career when I was trying to help people by telling them to eat lots of vegetables and nobody could do it. And it's like, you you feel like you're giving all these people the right advice. They're failing. So it's clearly their fault. It has nothing to do with the advice, which is th the best. And you don't understand why nobody can get to their goals, save the fact that these people can't listen to you enough. It's very, very frustrating. It's sad. Yeah, yeah. And, and people do look up to all of these authorities, whether it's the government and the dietary guidelines, whether it's the American Diabetes Association, whether it's whatever the hospital serves them or, or what the diabetes educator tells them, that's all they know for a lot of these people, you know, they come from a very simple educational background and, uh, you know, they're not good at, um, sorting through the BS, um, like, like, you know, many of us in this low carb community are, uh, or, you know, other scientists, so on. Um, 
so when they hear something about, you know, well, this is the guideline, this is, you know, government says this is what to do, they latch on uh, because they don't have the the wherewithal to to uh, appropriately evaluate that. How valid is that? And so, uh, so, so then I, I worked hard to give them that background information of, all right, there are different ways to do this. And, and I'm not asking you to eat carnivore. Although some people get that impression, right? Like you can do this vegan. Sure. I don't know how sustainable it is. Uh, well, I do know it's at some point it's not because of micronutrients, but, uh, but this, this doesn't have to look uh, any part, you know, I, I'm not telling you how to eat. I'm, I'm, I want to, I want you to understand that the key part here is what you don't eat, right? Avoid the carbs. You can make a huge impact. And beyond that, you can, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Eat plants, eat animals. I don't care. Yeah. Um, so, so I always worked on, on helping people understand that there are options and, uh, and they loved it. They, they really felt like someone was finally addressing, uh, this problem that had ruled their life. Cause once you're diabetic and you're injecting insulin and worried about your glucose all the time, Oh man, that's consuming. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just an exhausting way to live. Yeah. But they needed the hope and, and they, uh, and they ran with it. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So I'm not sure what like the average hospital stay you had experience <laughs> with, with these people. I don't know if it's like they were there for a week, they were there for a month. Um, just generally speaking, I asked you about the practicality and whether the patients would even accept your advice or be open to your advice. What about the results side of things? And what I would assume would be a fairly short amount of time in a hospital stay. What, what were the actual like results that you were noticing for people? Were you making a, a massive, huge difference? Were you making a small difference Were the numbers a little better, a lot better? Like what, what things were you observing? Yeah, so the length of stay was quite variable, and 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 this is the big thing. You know, hospital systems are are have a singular focus on shortening the hospital stay. At this point, they're trying to spend the least amount of money, so that that's a that's a constant battle. So, anyways, we, we were incentivized to keep the stays keep the stays as short as possible. So, anywhere from overnight stays to um, you know weeks sometimes months, although those are exceptions. Uh, but, you know, average stays were probably uh, three to five days. Okay. It was the bulk of it. Um, enough time to deal with an acute issue, make sure they're stable, and, and, then, and then get them back home. And the, the effects of modifying their diet uh, could be seen pretty rapidly within a day or two. And... And this became really apparent when I started tracking all that data. I was pulling up these charts and and logging every single glucose and the times. And uh, there's the, unfortunately there's a lot of variables in the hospital: insulin use, steroids, you know, like prednisone that that increases glucose. I actually excluded those patients, uh, as well as patients who are fasting for for more than 24 hours. Um, it's like, all right, those are, I don't, I don't want it to look like that's why the glucose was lower. So I would, I would exclude those, um, some of the exceptions and, but generally within about two days, there was a noticeable 
improvement in their in their glucose two and less insulin days. need. Two days. Two days. Two days. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts in the hospital, and so some of that could be from the fact that when the patient came in, there was a lot of acute stress, and that'll drive the glucose up. And so, so naturally, the glucoses are going to level out a little bit. But also keep in mind, I was comparing my experimental group to a to a control group. Although again, it wasn't the most rigorous science, um, but I did have that comparison group, and uh, yeah, it appeared that there was a significant uh, impact. Uh, also, you know, not only just reducing the hyper, the high hyperglycemia, the high glucose, but also there was a marked reduction in the hypoglycemic events, the low glucoses, because we needed less insulin. And, and insulin is is really dangerous, uh, especially in the hospital when there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, there's just too many moving parts for for um, uh, insulin to be safe in all settings. Uh, it's basically the, are you familiar with um, Richard Bernstein? Yeah. The, the, um, type one protocols, right? The, the type one protocols, and he has the law of small numbers, which I think is a very valuable concept. So, so the the smaller the the change you make, the smaller the change you'll see, the smaller the effect. And so, instead of walloping people with sixty grams of carbs followed by fifteen units of insulin, and you may have a dramatic swing, hyperger, hypo. Let's give them. 45 grams of carbs, and maybe they only need 10 units of insulin, you're much less likely to have a life-threatening event of hypoglycemia. Uh, So so the the law of small numbers is a a really valuable concept to apply in that situation. Yeah. And not a lot of people talk about the risk of having really high blood sugar, really high insulin. Those things are not innate in your body. Just because you took insulin to cover the glucose doesn't mean that your glucose going sky high didn't cause damage when it was really high. It's just, it's a huge problem. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. You know, I argue, I argue as I always have that, uh, insulin is the absolute worst way to treat type two diabetes. Um, because Type 2 diabetes is a state of high insulin, it's hyperinsulinemia, it's insulin resistance. So just like, like if somebody's fluid overloaded, what are you going to do? Give them more fluid? No, no, you're going to give them a diuretic, you're going to take it off. If they have high potassium, are you going to give them more potassium? Heck no, kill them. So if they have high insulin, are you going to give them more insulin? Well, of course, that's what we do. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Standard of care. No, I'm going to start a clinic treating alcoholics. And my idea for treating alcoholics that they can't get a buzz on the alcohol that they're having, <laughs> let's give them hard liquor so that they can continue to get a buzz. I I think I'm going to be rich. It's a great idea, I think. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's pure nonsense. Wow. And yet that's the standard of care and people don't get it. And in fact, you know, even, even more nonsensical, there's a standard of medical care for the hospital's setting, published by the American Diabetes Association. And this kind of thing updated every year, every other year, whatever. And the standard of care in the hospital setting is to stop all oral diabetes medications on admission and switch over to insulin. That's it. Simple as that. Because now, so, so this is built into the electronic records. So when I try to reorder somebody's metformin, 
I get hard stops and, and there's prompts built into the electronic record. Are you sure? Are you sure? Does the, does the benefit outweigh the benefit or the risks? Did you talk to the pharmacist? Did you adjust the insulin? I mean, you, have to, you have to answer all these questions just to order metformin. The, the first line treatment for, for type 2 diabetes because it's in the hospital setting and that's it's not the quote-unquote standard. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, so then I have all these, you know, these younger colleagues who, who uh, you know, fresh out of training or, or they're just, I mean, it doesn't even have to be younger colleagues necessarily, but, uh, you know, other hospitalists who, who, who just drink the Kool-Aid on this stuff you know, there'll be a patient sitting in the hospital for weeks, let's say they're fully recovered. Now we're maybe we're waiting on some, some other ancillary studies or some other piece to it. Uh, and they won't restart the metformin because that's the standard. We, we should keep them on insulin. I'm like you moron, put it back on their whole meds. I mean, what's the difference between starting their metformin now or tomorrow when you send them home, it's just a pure arbitrary designation, right? And so, so this kind of stuff, you know, people, people think, oh, well, doctors can override the guidelines. Yeah, but this is what happens is that they're uncomfortable doing so because it's not the standard of care. And now they feel like they're doing something cavalier. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Just, just on a practical, from a practical point of view, you're, you're saying that the priority of the hospital is to get people out of the hospital, discharge as quickly yes. as possible. It sounds like you found a way to be able to do that, I would assume, with being able to improve patients' numbers. I would assume they would be able to be able to discharge a little bit quicker. You're doing something that the patients were on board with. They they understood. You explained it. That They enjoyed it, in fact, and they loved having the education so much that they might have brought in their families and, and tried to you know continue doing what you were recommending when you were at home. Is this... This hospital system, why is it not named Dr. Chris Stather? Like, why do you not have a <laughs> national holiday with your name on it? Why are we not throwing parades, you know, annually for you? I don't understand why this isn't celebrated. Uh, I'm unpopular with administration. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it, you know what? I, part of my goal was to get that data uh, as far as does this improve length of stay? And it, so admittedly, I don't have it because I wasn't allowed to get enough data. I didn't have the support for it. But that data exists, actually. There's there's research from you know decades ago that shows improved glycemic control during the hospital results in a shorter length of stay. So I'm trying to sell the hospital on this point. And I gave them a tool like, all right, if you guys want to lower length of stay, we should look at improving glycemic control. If you want to lower glycemic control, or uh, sorry, improve glycemic control, here's how to do it. And the cheapest, simplest, safest way possible, right? I'm not, I don't want to use a ton of insulin. That's dangerous. You hit, you hit lows, but I'm giving you the simplest way to do this. And they didn't buy it. Using the cafeteria, yeah. using the cafeteria <laughs> rather than the pharmacy. Right. Something they already have. In fact, well, we'll actually save you money. You, you won't have to buy as many loaves of bread or whatever it be, might be. They're going to eat higher quality ingredients and, and have better glucoses. Hey, that's awesome. So, so yeah, the, the data exists and uh, I, I couldn't sell them on it. 
and I think that's just because of the inertia in healthcare. Wow. Uh, they're, they're stuck in their ruts and, you know, it's obviously it's a very pharmacology heavy, um, healthcare setting. If you want quick results, Oh, oh, oh here's the medication for that. Right. That's, 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 that's how you get someone out the door in three days or whatever it is. Uh, you, you gotta have some, you have, a, you have to have a quick intervention. Wow. And so it's, it's always about medications. I, I feel like a, a glorified pharmacist when I'm working in the hospital, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's very strict. If there's a problem, here's the solution. And it's always a pharmacologic solution. Wow. Here's the standard of care. Give this medication. Wow. Now I want to go back and revisit something that we talked about earlier. You said you found all of this out in 2014. It sounded like nobody had to teach you this, but what was it about you? Did like, was it common sense that you were looking at diabetics and, and, and seeing what they were eating? Like, how are you able to make that connection when seemingly no other doctors make that connection on their own without learning about things like low carbohydrate or seeing the research that you were actually doing? It's a good question. What made me, what set me apart from, from every other doc, I think, you know, part of it is I do have a mindset of challenging the status quo and, you know, staring at this problem, like, Hey, something's not working. We, we have this patient on the standard of care for diabetes and his glucoses are still 300. Um, you know, something's got to give, you gotta, gotta look for a better solution. So it really just started with that, that curiosity of, you know, you know, I, I approached the situation with the intent of finding something to fix. It was, that's the, that was the performance improvement project, right? And some, some, I guess it opened me up uh, to the, the possibility of there's a better way to do things. So let's go look for a better way or something that needs to be done in a better way. And that, I, I, I can't tell you exactly where the, the train of thought in that moment, except for, hey, everybody knows, at least I think, that carbohydrates increase glucose. And here's this guy who's diabetic. By definition, he's carbohydrate intolerant. We just gave him a bunch of carbs. Now his glucose is 300. This seems to me a very logical point of attack. Yeah. So I don't know why this is not happening on a bigger scale among other docs. You know, take this, for example, when somebody has a low glucose in the hospital, what do you think they do? They shove them full of sugar, right? Right. Here's, here's some orange juice. Oh, here, eat some cookies, eat some crackers. Or if they can't do that, you just shoot them full of dextrose glucose. Uh, in the IV, that's the quick fix. So if they're unconscious, can't eat, just, well, just give them a shot of E50. Okay. So so everybody knows that you would, you treat a low glucose by providing sugar or carbohydrates. So why don't we know the opposite? That if you wanted their glucose to be lower, maybe we shouldn't give them as much, right? I mean, I've been in the low carbohydrate space for a while now. And so that seems really obvious, Maybe it was less obvious when I first got into it, but the way you're explaining it, pretty much a five-year-old should kind of identify that and, and think like, well, yeah, if there's too much of something, let's 
have less of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it would be yeah. really obvious, but it it's so complicated because it, it's everything that you're saying, the hospital systems, the government recommendations, nutritional gui- guidelines, everything is against that one so simple thing that people don't make that conclusion very easily. Right, right. You know, an added piece to it, well, I kind of touched on it, is being that insulin is the standard of care, as defined by the American Diabetes Association, the so-called authorities, there's this perception of liability if you stray from that guideline. And, and I think that strangle holds a lot of clinicians in terms of, I mean, even if they see Dr. Stather over there playing with this carbohydrate-restricted diet and, oh, I hear good things and they may see my patient's glucoses look better than theirs. Uh, they're still uncomfortable. You know, for whatever reason, they're they're not willing to to uh, to be bold in their in their stance as the as basically the boss of the situation. You're you're the attending. You can do whatever you want as long as it's not cavalier. Um, I I found that you know thanks to Dr. Westman's papers and and several others. Um, the, the data was abundant enough and strong enough that I was doing something that was very defensible and I didn't feel that I was at risk in any way. You were comfortable. You felt very comfortable saying the things that you were saying. Absolutely. I had, I had basic science on my side. I mean, the, the most, the most basic science possible. Low glucose, give them sugar. Well, come on. If you want your if you want someone's sugar to go up, you give them carbs. I want their sugar to go down. How about we not give them carbs? <laughs> right? So so from that standpoint, as well as having the evidence uh that that simply you know dietary carbohydrate restriction um as the as the first line in treating diabetes, holy cow. Uh, I mean, that was a landmark paper to me that said, yeah, this is. This is a good intervention. It's an effective intervention. It's safe. There's no evidence of harm. I felt completely comfortable uh, taking the approach that I did. Wow. Wow. And very uncomfortable in the setting that you were in to the point that, I mean, I don't know, like when you start to see results on low carb, you really can't unsee that. And that would be, again, very uncomfortable for you in that setting. You decided to branch out and do something more unconventional. It sounds like it suits you perfectly. Tell us about the story of you kind of stepping out of the hospital setting. I know you said that you take some shifts every now and again, but it's not as much your day-to-day. You created your own thing. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my interest in metabolic health was obviously spurred by this, this event and then continued research on um, metabolic diseases. And, you know, while initially the, the interest was in diabetes and how that was managed in the hospital, it quickly spilled over into realizing that 80 plus percent of what I'm doing in the hospital and what we do in healthcare every day is the same damn disease. It's insulin resistance. There, there isn't a separate heart disease, vascular disease, stroke, dementia. I mean, dementia is complicated. Um, fatty liver, obesity, hypertension, all of these things. 
it was that so through my research, it was that realization that all of these problems are driven by insulin resistance. And yet we treat them so amazingly different in the hospital. I mean, it's, it's crazy to, to, to map it out and, and see how differently each one of these things is, is managed when it could all come down to this a really standardized insulin resistance treatment wipes out everything, right? So, so there's this analogy of, of, of the a tree of insulin resistance and all these problems, which when you're looking at it like, oh yeah, well, that's, that's everything we do in healthcare every day. And, uh, and it's all the insulin resistance. So you, you, you treat the, the core problem and, and the whole tree benefits, whole tree gets better. Um, so that realization that really we're targeting insulin resistance, i.e. metabolic health, uh, along with the, the realization that patients wanted this and it was beneficial to them. And th these people wanted to follow up with me when they left the hospital. I'm like, ah, sorry. Uh, once you leave the hospital, we're done. No more patient-doctor relationship. But they were, they were demanding it. And so some of them would email me and, and you know, send, I would tell them like, all right, general questions only. <laughs> I can't, can't really target your specific situation. Uh, but they would, they would send me feedback too. And just really cool stuff. Like, hey, doc, I, do you remember me? I was in the hospital. I had a stroke. I also had these terrible migraines. Well, I listened to your advice. Six weeks later, I'm off of my 40 units of insulin, completely off insulin. And my endocrinologist agrees. Like, hell yeah. <laughs> so, so I started getting these, these sorts of feedback from people. And I realized there was a great need for, for a service like this in the community. Don't wait until they're suffering a complication of the metabolic disease. Let's hit them up front. Let's, let's proactively address this metabolic health before they end up in the hospital. And uh, there was there was a there was a poignant moment for me, and so I had this patient on my list one day, forty five year old guy, former Division one collegiate swimmer, so athletic guy, um, and he was on my list with a stroke, confirmed stroke. We saw it on the CAT scan when he got admitted. No other medical history, and so I see this patient on my list. I'm like, Come on, forty five. I was like, I think that was only one or two years older than me at the time. And I, I started digging through his chart. Like why? With the question, why? Why did this guy have a stroke? This doesn't make sense. And long story short, he had been pre-diabetic for five years prior to this and well-documented in his electronic record. Every year, fasting blood work, glucose over 100, not terribly. 106, 109, but it's pre-diabetic. It should have gotten someone's attention. And so, so I go into a, this meeting with, or this, this rounding uh, on him. So I go into his room and, and sure enough, he says, doc, why, why did I have a stroke? And thank God I was prepared. I had done my research because I had an answer for him. And so I explained it to him and I said, all right, well, did your did your doctor ever talk to you about your fasting blood work? Like, no. Well, they, well, yeah. They said it was normal every year for the last five years. Told me it was normal. Like, well, I hate to break it to you, but 
here's the reality. It wasn't normal. And I am horribly sorry that nobody addressed this for you. And so I vowed that that is something that should never happen. And, and that has become one of my big uh, focuses is the early detection, accurate detection, um, and, and, you know, transparency, basically, of informing people that they have pre-diabetes. Like, let's get on top of this. It's just, it's one of the early, early signs before they develop a complication. Unfortunately for this guy, he went straight from pre-diabetes to having a stroke. Terrible luck. Uh, but that's the way it happens with some people. And so, long story short, the, the circumstances were as such that um, I I was my days in the hospital were were limited. I didn't want to keep doing it because corporate, et cetera, <laughs> as you can imagine, working for the man, it's very draining. And so I realized I I need to start this clinic. I need I need to make this happen. This has been a dream of mine for years, and. And it was getting closer and closer to what it would look like. And at some point, I came across this direct care model of care, of, of healthcare, where it takes the insurance company out of the picture. There's no insurance middleman telling you what to do, how to do it. It's, it's a pure patient-physician relationship. Nobody else is in the exam room. So any decisions that are made, it's either me, the patient, or the collaboration between us. That's, that's the only influence. So it's cash pay practice. And uh, so, so my practice is called Revitalized Metabolic Health. And, um, you know, basically with the intent of you know, the, the, the message of it's, it's time to revitalize how um, our, our health, our, our health status, and, and focusing on lifestyle as, a, as a, a big part of that. And so, so I'm focused on all things metabolic health with this, with this practice. The majority of people that come to me are are seeking weight loss. Um, there's I have several diabetics though, which was really I, I envisioned that being more of the population, uh, and it's growing. Uh, so more and more, but uh, but definitely, you know, you know, people are are most concerned about weight loss. It's the the outward visible manifestation of insulin resistance, right? And uh, and then over time, I've I've also incorporated primary care uh, in a direct primary care model. Um, again, keeping the insurance company out of the picture. So for a, a low monthly fee, you get full access to me, and and we address um, all things primary care. And so so part of the reason that primary care piece came in is, as I mentioned before, eighty percent of what we're doing in healthcare is metabolic health. Yeah, there's a few other things like trauma or some routine infections. Um, although propensity to infection, it turns out to be related to metabolic health. Yep. Shocker. <laughs> and so you dial in your metabolic health, you're not going to get those routine colds uh, as often. Sure, they're going to happen, but much less frequently. Um, and so, so, so many things are tied to the metabolic health. I thought, you know what? I'm already doing the 80% plus of healthcare. Let's do the primary care too. And it's a good service for my patients. Um, they love that. Um, so that, that's, that's how I transitioned out of full-time hospital medicine. Uh, and I'm doing less and less shifts in the hospital. Um, I should be out of the hospital, uh, in the next few months, actually. Wow. That's got to feel amazing. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. 
That's yeah, so amazing and and so happy for you that you found something different. Uh, whenever I hear um, a system like this, we we talk about systems in the medical system and you know the financial feasibility of doing different things. I want to know is your current practice financially feasible for yourself and also for your patients? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, now I'm I'm still growing my practice. Um, it's it's very close to to being self sustaining, uh, or or I should say to cover my bills. Let's say, um, it's uh, it, as with any small business venture, it takes a lot of work to get it off the ground and get it to a point where where it's it's running full speed. Um, you know, it's like you hear about doctors coming out of med school and residency saying, I didn't learn a stinking thing about marketing or how to run a business, <laughs> which is absolutely true. <laughs> because let's face it, you're being trained by the system. They want to keep you in the system. That's that's where they want you. Yep. They want you to be an employee. They want a pawn of their system. So they're not going to teach you how to be independent. Yep. That'd be crazy. So, so all of this has to be learned on your own. I think direct care especially direct primary care is the future of healthcare. As people are realizing that in insurance costs are spiraling out of control, you're getting less and less for more and more. Uh, the, the role of insurance in healthcare, uh, I think is going to be um, looked at very differently over the next few years. It's happening now, especially as we see exploding numbers of of uh, direct primary care clinics around the country there's over 2000 right now wow. which is really really awesome great yeah it was it was basically unheard of 15 years ago right and and, and now there's 2000 and they're thriving that's fantastic um but you know in, insurance doesn't equal health care you can get quality health care outside of insurance and, and, and having insurance doesn't guarantee that you get quality care. Um, so it's really important to understand that, that those are very different things. Basically, if, if you want quality care, you need to get outside of the insurance model because the insurance model says, hey, we need this, this clinician to see as many patients as possible. So, you know, we're going to schedule appointments every 10, 15 minutes. And then there's all sorts of things that come up. Can't, nobody can stay on that schedule. So you're lucky to get seven minutes, maybe 10 minutes face-to-face -face with your doc. It may not even be your doc. It's going to be whoever's available at that point. You have an acute issue? Oh, we'll get to you in two weeks if you're lucky. Well, what good is that? That doesn't help anyone. You know, here in my model, my direct primary care model, um, people could get in the same day. Next day, I reserve spots for, for same-day appointments. Like, you need to be seen? Come on in. I'm here. I had, had a guy texting me on the weekend with an, with an issue that couldn't wait. Took care of it on the phone, uh, even though I was out of town. Uh, so these things are possible. Uh, there's, there's great things possible when, once you get outside of the insurance model. There's amazing discounts on medications because I can buy them wholesale, pass the savings on to my patient. Labs, same deal. Um, wholesale rates on labs, huge discounts. Um, imaging, same deal. Because uh, DPC docs set up 
contracts with these, with the labs, the medications, the imaging, so they get exclusive rates. Healthcare doesn't have to be expensive. Insurance is what makes healthcare expensive. When you ask your insurance to pay for it, it's going to be expensive and you're probably not going to like what you get because it's going to be on their terms, not yours. Hospital is not throwing you a parade. I'm going to throw you a parade. I'm going to name a day out of the year after you. This is amazing. I get so pessimistic when I hear all the details of what's really truly going on out in the world. And then I hear stories like yours and I get so hopeful that this will find the right people at the right time. And if so many people start coming to you and have amazing results and are really happy, that message is going to spread. And it's just so cool to talk to people like you yeah. who learn this stuff on the fly, on the job. You weren't necessarily taught this initially. You got curious. You asked some questions. You explained all of it to us in a way that, again, I would argue a five-year-old could understand today. It's so wonderful. It's so cool what you're doing. I'm so glad I got to be your low carb Denver. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. It sounds like, you know, it's, it is going to be a process running your own business is not that easy. And it's definitely building the plane as you're flying it, but to, to hear that it's a viable option for your patients and for yourself and to know for sure that your job satisfaction must be through the roof, actually helping people. You can sleep at night, regardless of whether you're making as much as you are, you know, we're at the hospital. I think it's so cool. It's so savage. I absolutely love it. Dr. Chris Dather, where do you want people to go to find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah, thanks a lot, Casey. I appreciate what you're doing too, getting the word out to people. It's super valuable. We got to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So my website's revitalizedmetabolichealth.com. Um, you can also get there with a simpler one, rmhgh.com. The GH is Gate Harbor. And then uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, even TikTok. Nice. Post some, uh, <laughs> some videos up uh, on all those or uh, you know, all sorts of social media uh, content. Nice. That's great. Well, I will follow you on social media and hopefully one day I will see you either playing ice hockey or ice fishing. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll meet again at low carb. Look there we go. Denver, uh, next year. Yeah, there we go. No, that would be great. The stories that I hear from a wife spending time up at her cabin in Wisconsin during the winter ice fishing, like literally sitting on a bucket, not having a hut, sounds absolutely <laughs> frigid. So if you could avoid it, it sounds best. You just just continue to avoid it. If you've made it this far in life, you don't you don't need to at all. Uh, Dr. Chris, Dave, thank you so very much for everything that you are doing. It's so wonderful to hear people step outside of a paradigm that's not working and actually help people and have that job satisfaction. It's just, it's endlessly cool. I think you are endlessly cool. And thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy day to spend some time with us and educate us on all the stuff that you're doing and metabolic health. We really, really appreciate you. Thanks. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
Thank you, as always, so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. We really have such a passion for this work and for sharing our message. I've always said this, and I still believe it, that if I were to win the lottery today, that I would still show up for all of my clients and continue this work starting at 6 a.m. next Monday. It's just really a joy to be able to work with people and share our message and to be able to share this message with people all over the world, be able to interview all kinds of different doctors and researchers or just everyday people to share their stories and literally inspire hundreds of thousands of listeners to our show. Last year, we decided to start our Patreon page to be able to share premium content for a subscription fee, which included private coaching, early releases of our podcast, which was unedited, and also my special project of making the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast, which is basically the highlights of all of the hundreds of episodes that we have done, all condensed down into a masterclass of a particular topic, including different macronutrients and also ketogenic diets. The subscription model uh, really wasn't exactly a smash success, to say the least, but I did put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those episodes, and I'm really just not that comfortable with them sitting around behind a paywall when they could be out helping people. So we have decided to terminate our Patreon page. I will be releasing all of the content that we created for the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast on our normal show, Boundless Body Radio, for free. So be on the lookout for that in the coming months. And be sure to leave any feedback that you might have. If you enjoy them, we'd really love to hear from you. They were really fun to make, and I really enjoyed reviewing all of our content to create them. But like I said, if they're not out there helping people, I'm just not really okay with that, and I really want them to get out and help. So remember that you can always book a free complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. We've really enjoyed connecting with people all over the world to discuss all things health and fitness. And so feel free to do that and take advantage of that. And as always, thank you again so much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.